Well, this is, uh, as Ben already mentioned, Palm Sunday, and if we're trying to be subtle about it. <laughs> and I uh, hope you appreciated the symbolism of those, those palms. I think, Pastor Jeff, are we going to use these palms for, are we going to burn these for next year's Good Friday? Good. So don't take them all home. What did you say, Mike, Michael, Two fifty dollars a piece for the branches? But for you, $3 a piece, we want to take them home. Well, that uh, was a day of questions, I'm sure, on that day that Jesus rode into Jerusalem. And if they didn't have questions the day he rode in, they had plenty of questions by the end of the week because that week wasn't turning out the way people thought it was going to turn out. It didn't really begin the way they thought it was going to begin. They must have been scratching their heads, wondering why is he riding in on a colt? Where's the stallion and the army and all the power? They didn't know what was waiting for them. I grew up in a Christianity, a form of Christianity, although I grew up in a wonderful church, very much loved, heard the good news of Jesus in my church as a kid, but there were, it wasn't perfect. And one of the things about it that I reflect on now and realize, ah, that was unfortunate, was that in the church or the form of the branch of Christianity in which I grew up, Questions weren't really allowed. In fact, if you had questions and doubts, that was equal to not having faith. Oh, you don't want him. You don't want to have your children influenced by him because he's got doubts. He has too many questions that are a little bit scary. And that's unfortunate because the fact is that just like on that day that Jesus came in to town on Palm Sunday, just like that, sometimes just the questions that actually lead to the deepest and greatest and long, most long-lasting Benefit. Questions have value, and they're part of our faith, a normal part of our faith. They do all sorts of things. Sometimes they can reveal a legitimate curiosity or even a longing for a deeper relationship. People ask people questions. It means they want to get closer. Like my little brother, Lenny, is four or five years younger than I am, and when he was a little guy, we always got linked together. Pardon? Oh, there, I forgot that was up there. That's not Lenny, but Lenny was way cuter than that kid. But... But he's a little guy, and when we'd go hunting, our dad took us hunting and hiking and fishing and everything, and we would ride horses. And whenever we'd go in, my little brother would ride double behind me. So I had the saddle, he had the little squeaky voice behind me, and you could just picture us going into Echo Lake one day. We're coming past one of the great big boulders there. It was on the right-hand side of the trail, and on our left was this big, beautiful, one of the Echo Lakes. And it looked deep and blue and, and, and lovely, and my little brother was the master of questions that were actually designed just to get closer to me. But they, they were silly questions. He, they were questions without answers, really. And I'd hear him one day, he, we're riding up there, and he says to me, from behind me, holding around my waist. And his name was Squeaky, that was his nickname. My nickname was Tiger. And he says, Tiger! What, Lenny? See that big boulder up there? Yes, Lenny, we're riding right past it. Would you rather have that big boulder tied around your neck and then get thrown into that lake or have an alligator eat you alive? Which one? <laughs> See? Uh, I don't know, Lenny. I, I don't know, and my hair looked like that, too. That, in fact, that could have been me. I don't know, Lenny. I, I guess I'd rather have the stone tied around my neck and have it thrown into the lake. And then he always had the same follow-up. It's a follow-up question that if you raised a kid for two years, 80% of the time, this is the question you heard over and over again, which is? Why? 
Why? I don't know. I think it'd be scary to get eaten alive by an alligator. And it was like that all the way in to the campground. Silly question after silly question. Sometimes, though, they're legitimate curiosity. They're just an attempt to get closer to you. They can also reveal a profound need for formation because questions contribute to our formation. We're formed by our questions and our doubts. But sometimes the questions you hear from people reveal the need for formation and for growth. These are actual questions asked on the internet, which is, you know, it's the internet. So it's, it's like a virtual university. Here's some actual questions that reveal the need for formation. Question one. What kind of bees produce milk? What kind of bees? Is there a spell to turn people back into a human that really works? I've asked that of my mother-in-law every once in a while. Is there a spell? Hey, easy. Here's one. If evolution is true, why don't pigs have wings? Gotta love that, but not as much as I loved the answer that was on the internet. Because evolution doesn't give you wings. Red Bull does. Red Bull gives you wings. There's an intelligent answer. Here's one. Is an egg a fruit or a vegetable? An egg. Is it a fruit or a vegetable? And some of you are thinking right now, I think my son sent that question in. I love this one. A little more sophisticated. What percentage of water is celery? And the answer is water is exactly 0% celery. Think about it. Wait for it. What's better to learn, American, British, or English? It's a legitimate question because I don't know what language they're speaking over there in England, but it ain't English. I got to tell you that right now. Here's one you're going to love. How far is the drive from Miami to Florida? That's a long drive. Or a short one. And then this, because some questions show the profound need for formation. If the NFL is just for America, tell me something. Why does New England have a team? Broncos fans have been asking that for a long time. Why does New England have a team? Sometimes our questions show the need for knowledge, the need for formation. But when it comes to our faith and thinking theologically, it's often our questions and our doubts that actually lead to some of our most significant formation because we are formed by our questions and our doubts. You see the recipe for disaster. When you come into a quick Christian context that implies or flat out declares, no questions allowed, no doubts allowed, we're threatened by those. If, you see the problem when that's the case and we're actually formed by our questions and our doubts when they're reasonable doubts and reasonable questions, we've got a real problem. Look in John chapter 20, because we have a couple of examples of this, the value of a good question and the richness of a good question. In John chapter 20, beginning at verse 11, you've got Mary outside the tomb. So we're talking Easter. I'm jumping a week ahead. But Mary comes to the tomb, and she looks in there, and it says in John chapter 20, and listen to all the questions that are used to help form her. Mary stood outside the tomb crying, and as she wept, she bent over, to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and one at the feet. And they asked her, woman, why are you crying? Now, they probably already knew why she was crying. 
but they still ask her the question to lead her down the road of formation. They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she didn't realize that it was Jesus. And he asked her the same question. Woman, why are you crying? Who is it you're looking for? Questions again to which he already knew the answer, but he's inviting her with a question to grow. And thinking he was the gardener, she said, she actually makes a statement that serves as a question. Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him and I'll go get him. In other words, where have you taken the body? And that's when Jesus simply offers two syllables. Mary. And she turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Now she sees differently because of those questions. The next thing you know, she's clinging to him. Quite a bit different response than the first one. And he says, don't hold to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my Father and to your Father, to my God and your God. Do you see the depth that's there in the answer and what she understands differently than she understood before the question was asked? Slip down a little bit in that same chapter, you have the man called Doubting Thomas, who's actually Honest Thomas. And it says in verse 24, Thomas, also known as Didymus, now, what I just skipped over was a reference to the fact that Jesus showed himself to the, after his encounter with Mary, he shows himself to the apostles, all of them except Thomas, who wasn't with him. Thomas, also known as the twin, one of the 12, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, listen, Thomas, we've seen the Lord. Thomas said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands, put my finger where the nails were, and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. So there's Thomas's reasonable doubt expressed. It's reasonable because this is a pretty fantastic claim. But listen to how Jesus responds to the reasonable doubt of his followers. He doesn't say, as would have been said to me early in my career as a Christian, shame on you for having doubt. You're a faithless man. We can't trust you with any guidance. You're not allowed to question. You're not allowed to doubt. Just believe. That's not how Jesus responds. A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. And the doors were locked, but Jesus came and stood right next to them. And he says, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas. So he comes in, peace be with you. Where's Thomas? Where's that guy who had that reasonable doubt? He says, come here, Thomas, let me give you what you need. Put your finger here, see my hands? Reach out your hand and put it into my side, and doubt no more. Now believe instead. And what does Thomas say? Because he's formed by his questions, his honest and reasonable doubt, and the response Jesus has to that, now Thomas sees differently. He's formed by that series of questions and doubts. And he says, my Lord and my God. And Jesus does not rebuke him for calling him, for calling Jesus God. And Jesus says, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen me and still believe. By the way, that's us. Blessed are those who have not seen me and still believe. You know, someone once asked the Nobel prize-winning scientist, how he became a scientist. And his answer 
was this. The Nobel laureate replied that every day after school he would come home and his mother would ask him about his day at school, but she wouldn't ask him what he had learned. What she would do, what she was really interested in, was this. She would ask him every day, he said in his answer. Did you ask any good questions today? What are the good questions you ask? And that was the measure of how her day went. So he said, my answer, I guess, to the question, what was it that led me to become a scientist? How did I become a scientist? He said, the answer is asking good questions. That's what made me a scientist. Asking good questions. You can't hear properly and fully the message of Christianity, especially on Holy Week, about a death and the power of weakness and a resurrection without having questions. To fully hear that message is to have questions, and we all know it. What we want to do is create or protect an environment where we're not only free to ask the questions, but we get the privilege of being formed by our questions. Growth from the freedom to ask them. Power found in a reasonable doubt. Don't run away from questions and doubt. Embrace them. Let's walk together in the midst of them. And apparently you have. Last Sunday, we introduced uh, at the end of this form series on formation and uh, uh, being formed in spiritual practices, we introduced a questionnaire. Some of you were here, last, maybe many of you were here last week, and you got to answer some questions that we had on the cards and then ask some questions of us. And I want to ask the other two members of our lead pastor team, uh, Pastor Jeff and Pastor Ben, the three of us together serve as lead pastors here at Brent Covenant. And we've got some of those questions that you asked. We want to respond, uh, respond to those. You started out on these cards by responding to some questions that, that we formed on the cards. And here are some of those answers. One of them was, in five words or less, describe your general impression of experimenting with spiritual practices over the weeks. And, and these things that we've selected to talk about here and answer represent a lot of what the other cards said. But two responses were, I've discovered that I'm a wuss. <laughs> I, I didn't write that, but I could have. Another one was, I discovered that God was bringing me back. There's something about that weakness that's known in the Advent experience that shows that thing. Another, another question or uh, statement, how have you experienced God's power working throughout the series? One said, I have had glimpses of a softer, more forgiving heart. I love the honesty of that. Not, I have a softer and more forgiving heart now, done, next. I've had glimpses taste of a softer and more forgiving heart. Whoever wrote that, may you keep moving toward that. Worry has slipped away, replaced with trust, joy, and gratitude. Gratitude's always a good remedy for worry, isn't it? What's been a surprise to you? Well, how God has revealed issues through prayer, revealed things in me like fears and anxieties that are still present in me. Such honesty. When I come to the end of myself, another person says, and trust in Jesus, a whole new me appears. Beautiful. And what have you found to be difficult? Could have filled the page. Realizing that Jesus is sweet enough. Somebody who was fasting from sugar, which many people did. 
many of you wrote down what you were fasting from, and many, a, a good number of people said sugar or versions of sugar. And one of those people wrote uh, that she found it, or he found it difficult uh, to believe that Jesus was sweet enough. But the card sort of represented that as a discovery as well. Or hearing God's answers and knowing the difference between his words and Satan's words. Boy, Lent makes you vulnerable, doesn't it? Moldable. And somebody else wrote, waiting for his answers. Hearing them, waiting for them. So some good responses. But we want to respond to some of the questions you wrote for us too. And so the three of us are going to do that. We're going to read, the, read a question and respond. And then uh, if we have time, to the degree we have time, we'll get some feedback questions maybe that you have as well. Jeff? The, the, these are, by the way, thanks for doing this, these cards that we had last week. A, a whole bunch of you guys filled those out, and, and we just think that was so great. And we'd like to do a little of this more often after, you know, toward the end of our series to engage with some questions and have you, uh, you know, go, hey, great job preaching, but that was one directional, and uh, you raised more questions than answers. I think that was the case in this series more than any we've preached in a long time, because we we gave you all these spiritual practices and said, let's spend a week on prayer. And then we downloaded on you and said, go experiment. And then you came back with about 80 questions. And then we gave you a new practice. And then you had to go and figure out all that you didn't know about that experience. And it raised questions. So we'd like to do this a little bit more often. But one of the things that came up that was, in, that was general across this, and, it's, and it's, uh, it, it was exhibited in this card right here. Who is this card? No, I'm just kidding. I'm not going to call you up. Uh, do you, this question, do you believe, you, do you really believe, and really was inserted in the, in the sentence, they wrote it first and then they wrote really, do you really believe that temporary denial of a pleasure helps us grow into Christ or grow up into Christ? Do you really believe that a, that, that a temporary denial of pleasure helps us to grow into Christ? And I, and I wanted to start with this one because there are a whole bunch of forms of this question, but let me start by saying this. All of these practices that we looked at and by the way, if you missed some of these, I really would go back on the internet and watch the, uh, the sermons on the topics that you missed. But these practices, we had silence, fasting, worship, spiritual friendship, service, prayer, studying the word, and that's only a smattering of the practices that are out there. All of those practices aren't all about denying yourself pleasure. That's how what I want to start with the answer there. Fasting was one that we, we all fasted, many of us fasted from something during the whole month of Lent. So we had a sense of fasting during this experience. But all of the practices aren't necessarily about fasting and they're not necessarily disciplines in, in the sense that they're a denial or that it's difficult for us. I don't wanna say that. One of the messages that we often think Jesus is calling down from far away in heaven is, if you're unhappy, that's my will. If you hate something, pick that choice. I want that for you, right? So there's a sense in which it's just this, like, why do, is denial really, that, do I always have to deny myself? So I just wanted to frame it with that, first of all. That's not necessarily the case. These practices aren't just about denying yourselves pleasure. In fact, I hope that you've experienced some practices that you found pleasure in, that you found your spiritual love language in doing some of these practices. Now, that being said, is there some denial, some growth that comes from denial? Linda, yesterday in, in the car, I've mocked Linda a few times for her fast. Uh, she gave up sugar, my wife, she gave up sugar this, this uh, Lent. And we were in the car and she's like, I don't think my fast is doing what it's supposed to do. <laughs> Anybody have that experience? Oh, I'm, I'm miserable and I don't feel any different. Is that what it's supposed to do? Is Because if that's the goal, then I win, you know, A plus for me. 
do I really believe that a temporary denial or these kinds of fasts, the temporary denial of pleasure can help us grow into Christ? And I just, I said this, and then she said, you know what, you ought to tell them that tomorrow. And this is what I said to her. I said, you know what, just the mere fact of telling my body and my flesh and my mind, you don't always have to do whatever you feel like doing has benefit to my character. Because my flesh is going to want to do what I feel like doing. But from time to time, to pause and to say, Lord, give me the strength. Give me the courage to know that I don't always just have to do what I want to do. That will build character because then there will come a time when your flesh wants to do something that you should not do and you know that you have the strength. You developed the muscles to say no. So yes, I think a temporary denial of pleasure helps grow you. I also think, the, and, the, and the classic answer for the fast idea is, when my wife was longing for sugar, it was just a reminder to stop and to pray and to remember that she is a servant of Jesus, that he meets all of her needs, and he may not be meeting this need perfectly right now that sugar would have fulfilled, but that's beside the point. It's simply a reminder that Jesus is Lord. And so, yeah, that will always grow us because it will, anything, any fast that we, that we enter into will always just turn our attention constantly to the Lord in our longing. And we say, you're sweet enough for me or you're enough for me. One of the other questions. Uh, that's my fault. Sorry. One of the questions we had uh, revolved around scripture. And uh, the question that I, that I got was, how important is teaching scripture to the church? And there's a number of other questions about how important is Bible reading and reading scripture and what, what role should that play? And uh, there was a time uh, before the internet and a time before video games when one of the ways that uh, guys would connect and hang out would be by playing board games. And uh, when I was in college, we played Risk and it was a lot of fun. And uh, until there was a, a a challenge I'm sorry, that makes you a nerd. You know that, right? Yeah. Uh, I, you, thinking, you I didn't have that? your college experience. Yeah, my mic was on. I just went my for it. My whole college experience sorry. was a risk. I'm comfortable with who I am. Okay. <laughs> it's just a simple illustration trying to get just, to a point. Well, good. We understand. It was, just, right. it was an obvious thing needed to be said. Sorry. Bring it. It's all good. Anyway, all is, all is well until uh, there's, a, there's a challenge between uh, the rules that are written down and then the house rules. And, hey, this is how we play. And uh, sometimes fights would ensue over those things. And if you just had all the pieces of Risk or any of your favorite board games and you're just all played out there, you can kind of come up with a game that works. And, uh, but unless you have the rules, unless you have a, a way that you interact and move the way it was designed to play, you're going to miss out on how the game was designed to play and miss out on all the fun. And I really think that Scripture is simply that. It is the, uh, the roadmap that God has given us. We have been made in the image of God. He created earth. He created us to interact with him and with each other. And uh, we are in, live in a broken and fallen world, which means that we have our own house rules that all compete with each other in every single thing. And unless we have some other rules, some other framework, some other lens, then our house, then our house rules are only going to cause conflict. And as the church uh, and Christians for thousands of years and, and uh, Jewish people before that have submitted uh, their views on who they are and who God is, under the authority of Scripture. This is, this is the lens in which we recognize who God is and who we are. And so we think it is very, very important. And even as a pastor, even as someone who's gone, gone to seminary, even, even as someone who spends plenty of time in discipline to, to know Scripture, I come across things about who God is. I'm like, oh, is that really true? I'm not so sure. And I'm wrestling with, and I have doubts with. And, but I'm just going to go, ah, I don't like that. That's, I don't agree with that, so I'm out. 
I have to wrestle with and duke it out and be in community so I can come to a conclusion that that works. And so we as a community want to be humble in our approach towards God and towards each other, and we want to be shaped by Scripture. And how is it important for the teaching of Scripture to the church? Uh, We think it's very important. We're part of a church and a denomination that values people being ordained to word and sacrament, that there's a, a, a rigorous training and equipping and continuing education that we do so that we can understand how to teach scripture and, uh, and shepherd our people. And it's super important for all of us as followers of Christ to be in the word and wrestling that out in community. And I'm a nerd. Yeah, you are. That's our favorite awesome. nerd. Thanks, man. Appreciate Sorry it. about that. We must have left the slide out. That was a question about teaching in, uh, the scriptures in the church. How important are the scriptures to our growth in the church? So in case you were wondering what was going on behind us, that was a different question. Uh, there was a question followed by a statement. So this is a statement... Um, said, Art's sermon on prayer was difficult for me and somewhat confusing, left, left confused. I felt Welcome as though... Welcome to the party. I'm sorry. Pardon? <laughs> not that, I'm sorry. I, you should mute me when it's not... <laughs> What'd you say about a mutiny? <laughs> that was a good one, huh? Yeah. Hey, thank you. Thank you. Thank you very Too much. Close? <laughs> Welcome to my world. <laughs> Art sermon was difficult and left me somewhat confused because I felt as though I should stop praying for my son's healing and ask for continued strength to endure a painful, difficult situation instead. That, if you remember, was a, a sermon on seeing prayer as a formational experience primarily as opposed to a transactional experience. And this person actually nailed the primary weakness of that sermon. So I knew that that's what would be implied by trying so strongly to make this other point. Um, And the final question is, is it wrong to desire a transaction once in a while? For God's, I'm offering this, will you please give me that in response to my prayer? And the simple answer is absolutely not. Uh, Probably this comes from uh, recognition that Jesus in one story sent his disciples out to do the ministry he had been doing and they come up against a a demon that they can't cast out. Right. And they come back, after having lots of success, come back and say, hey, we told this one to get out and he didn't get out. He just sort of laughed at us. And Jesus says, ah, oh, that's because this kind of demon requires much prayer and fasting, or much fasting with prayer. So we're introduced to something we're gonna call mystery. There is a correlation between our prayers and God's activity. In that sense, it can feel like a like is a little bit transactional. The point is, we just don't know what the correlation is. So to come to prayer with the idea that, here, look, I prayed and I checked the boxes, I prayed in Jesus' name, I'm assuming it's according to your will, I even went without eating for a couple days before I prayed, you now, since I laid that down on the table, you owe me this back. That's the transactional attitude that doesn't make space for mystery. We've got to figure out ways to not go there. But at the same time, as Jesus also teaches time after time again, uh, time and time again, ask. You don't have because you don't ask. That's one of the reasons you don't have, because you don't ask. Ask, 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 ask. But we ask with an awareness of mystery and an awareness, this is not what's going on, but this might be what's going on. So the answer is no, it's not wrong to say, Lord, please do this miracle in my child's life or in my country's life or in my own life. 
And some of the time, he actually does what we ask for. So in that sense, we make space for the ask and receive, but without the attitude of, I asked, and so now you owe it to me. And here's where that goes wrong. See, if you don't give me what I asked for, I'm giving up on you because you've disappointed me, and now you're underperforming for me. Do you see how the difference there? Instead, I ask, I don't receive what I think I wanted, and we need to develop an attitude that said, okay, I'm waiting on you, Lord. Re-instruct me. How should I pray according to your will? Give me the strength to endure this, but I'm not going to stop asking. Yeah. I appreciate that. That's something that I, I, was, re- I was reacting to that inside when you were talking. I just was refamiliarizing myself with the story of, in, uh, I think it's in 1 Kings 18 or something, about like when Elijah was praying for rain to come. There was a drought in the land, and the Lord had already said to him, I'm going to send rain. So the Lord had already done his sovereign thing, but he wanted to engage in this relationship with Elijah. And so he said, so now go ask for it. And so Elijah went and prayed. Do you remember this? Yeah. And he prayed, he had to pray. So he prayed, Lord, okay, send rain, which is what you want to do. It's your will. Send rain. And, and he looked up and there was, and his servant went and looked on the horizon. And there was no clouds. Remember this? And so he went and he prayed again. Well, the point of the story is that he had to go eight times. So the transactional thing at it, it, the beginning, there could have been a like, listen, man, you said you wanted to do something. We wanted it to rain. We need it to rain. Where are you? You give up. You decide God's given up on you, so you give up and you give up on prayer. But it took eight times, even though he knew it was God's will, before the miracle um, took place. So that, yeah, and, that, and, and there it formed him. It formed, it formed the prophet. Well, I, I, I'm guessing that's the point. I'm guessing that that's the point. If the Lord already wanted to do it, and if it was clearly a straight transactional prayer, it would have, listen, I'm going to send rain, go ask for it. Hey, look, I sent rain. There you go. Look how we work together. Mm-hmm. There was a whole bunch of mystery going on in the middle of it. And his servant had kept going over to the edge and looking on the horizon and seeing nothing and coming back going, your God is not working. Um, some form of this question came up a lot. How, how can I grow faith in my heart faster than I grow um, the world there? How can I grow faith in my heart faster than I grow the world there? In other words, how can I... Get, get on a faster lane with God than the world is affecting me. Can I get more affected and formed by God than the way the world is forming me? And um, uh, two quick answers to that as I thought about it this morning. One is, First John chapter 4, John says to the believers, greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. This is something we forget, you guys, that we're filled with the Holy Spirit and it is possible for us to be changed and to be formed by God who has this infinite power than by the world that's full of all kinds of junk and by the enemy that runs the world and by the way that he wants people to live. We think, oh, you know, kids, my kids are just going to be like that. That's the way people are. Or I'm just going to be like this. That's how. No, that greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. We cannot give up hope. If you were the enemy, it would be so great to get people to think you'll never change. Oops, I'm preaching. Sorry, I'm going to sit down. (laughs) To think you'll never change. Your kids can't have any higher standards than that or whatever it is. And, And this isn't about morals. This is about being formed by Christ. And so, yes, uh, God can help you grow and you do not have to be the way everybody else is or the way the world is or the way that your flesh wants you to be. That's the first answer. Great is he is in you that he is in the world. The second part of it, of it is, Art and I were chatting about an illustration he shared a while ago. It's like, well, it's going to depend on what dog you feed. That old illustration of, I think it was a Native American 
guy about you know two different conflicting desires, like which you know which one's going to win? Well, whichever one you feed. And that's a hard word for us. That's part of the Bible study question that Ben was saying. We, there's a lot of stuff in the Bible that's actually too easy for us to. We just you know if we invest in in the things of God then we're going to grow and change. And this is what this whole thing was about. This was about practices, friends. That's why this was a very proactive sermon uh, series, sermon series. It's about practices. It's about practicing these disciplines, putting them into our lives. Yes, saying, I'm going to do these things because I know that they will be investments into who I'm becoming for God. And if we put, what's, what's the, is it computer science that coined the term garbage in, garbage out? So good stuff in, and I'm going to become what it is that I want to become. So again, we're not telling you guys, you should do practices because we want you to find stuff that is totally unnatural and horrible for you and make you depressed about being a Christian and make you more committed to those. Do that. Praise God. Hallelujah. We're saying we're going to invest ourselves in the things that are going to, going to put us in the place where God can do his work. So which dog are we going to feed? And so we blasted you over the last eight weeks with all these practices, but now we're gonna, we want you to go and, and be living in those practices as the days go forward because that's part of investing in your, um, in your growth. But there's also this, this reactive part. That's proactive. The reactive part is that idea of, of, of having to say no to some stuff. We're going to say yes and invest ourselves into the things that shape us for the kingdom. But then we're also going to have to say no to some things. And we are not used to that and we do not like it. And that's why I think forever and ever we're going to practice Lent together as a church. Because of the power in us finally saying no to our selfish worlds. Just for a while to teach us. You don't have to say yes to everything. How do I want to live intentionally? And there are people, and I, you know, I, I, I've got men that I'm very close to that when they go on a business trip, uh, they say no to television so they don't just take any temptation to potentially watch something that, that's inappropriate for them. Uh, I know people who just literally say, I mean, I know a, a girl in her 20s who says, I can't, I can't go to R-rated movies. Like, it jacks me up. The, the violence wrecks my soul. The sexual thing gets all in my head because she's single, and it's like, I don't, I can't. I can't. She goes, you know what it's like in today's world to be in your 20s? And people go, let's go to the movies. She goes, what's it rated? She goes, what am I, 10? She could go play Risk. <laughs> That's what I'm talking about. But to what it do, she knows what it does to her soul, and she's not willing to feed that dog. And so how can I grow faster? Let's practice these things that put us in the place where God can have his way in our lives and say no to some other things. You know, uh, this question is kind of a follow, it's an exact follow-up to that question, which is then how do you deal with a failure to meet this commitment to being transformed? Mm. Um, especially after you already think you would, and some may start Lent or uh, New Year's resolutions, like, this is it, this is the time that I'm going to be transformed and be committed to this. And I love the way this is phrased, because uh, this is your question, I think it's actually most of our question, but it's actually phrased inappropriately, I think. It's this commitment to being transformed, and, and we put all this effort, if I do this, then I'm going to be transformed. And it's, it's so close to being right, so it feels like it's right, but it's missing it. What our commitment mm. is, mm. is to being close to Jesus. Mm. Um, the, our whole thing about engaging the spiritual hungry towards a life in Christ, everything that we do is moving us 
towards Jesus. Jesus is the one who transforms us. Jesus is the vine. We're the branches, right? When we abide in him, we bear much fruit. When we think, I need to be more patient, I need to be more patient, I need to be more patient, we can be patient for about 10 seconds. Then we are failures for not being transformed. God, you wanted me to be this way and I'm not this way. And so I think when we think our commitment has to be, these are, these are all tools. All these spiritual disciplines are simply tools to get us in a place to be formed by Christ. And so all of our effort, all of our energy is to be near Jesus, to be connected to Jesus, to be open to Jesus, so that Jesus then can reveal in us, heal us, mold us, shape us, transform us. That's the work that he does in us. It's not the work that we do ourselves. And, um, and, I, and I love it. And so what do you, how do you deal with failure? And for me, for Lent, I had a, a hit and miss. I did really well for some parts and I had a couple weeks where I was way off the wagon. And, uh, and when we fail... We're, I think the only time we really fail is we go, well, I'm going to wait till next Lent. Well, that's a huge failure as opposed to today's a new day. Your mercies are new every day. Every yeah. day we wake up, we start brand new with Jesus to get after all that he has for us. And all those incremental steps makes us close enough to Jesus where we're actually transformed wow. over the long haul. Oh, mic drop. That's awesome. Glad to make yeah. up for all that we're mocking, you know, yeah. the last few minutes. We, uh, that's awesome. We're winding down. But are there any other questions that you, we had four or five more questions we want to respond to, but are there any more that you guys really think would be terrible if we, if we missed them that you had assigned to you? Not terrible. But really need to be said? No. Okay. okay. Good. We'll do more of this. We like this interaction. Uh, every once in a while, we think this is good and healthy and actually probably an ancient practice for the church that we've neglected uh, a little bit. So we like the idea of... Well, let's, let's take that and uh, anything that you got that you gained out of that or the asking of the question, uh, hold tight to it. Hope this reiterates something that we try to communicate all the time. Our purpose is to engage with the spiritually hungry toward a life in Christ that's inspired and then what? Intelligent and involved. And you... You can't have intelligent unless you're free to ask questions that you're probably not supposed to ask. Well, there are questions that's probably inappropriate to ask in different contexts. But to ask hard questions about your faith, to experience doubt honestly, reasonable doubt in the presence of Christ who longs to form us, transform us, that's his primary goal. To carve us into the image of Jesus. We might be able to serve him in responding to the agenda of his father, whom in that text he called my father and your father, to my God and your God. Transformation can happen. And if it can't happen, well, Jesus got an awful lot wrong, and he didn't get anything wrong. Hope that reminds you, today's experience reminds you, be free to ask There's formation there for you when you ask in community. Let's pray. Would you stand? Now, oh God, in this Palm Sunday where people were expecting one thing and started the day with all sorts of excitement and anticipation, some of it vindictive, but ended the day with all sorts, and certainly the week, with all sorts of questions. We recognize and thank you for the fact that you are a God who hears the questions, responds with mercy and understanding to the doubt, 
and says to all of us, come here. Put, put your finger here. Put your hand there. I'm not afraid of your doubt. I'm not afraid of your questions. I welcome them because I have answers. That's the God we worship today. We're grateful for today. We cling to today. And in some cases, we seek and hope is really alive today. Now, church, may the peace of Christ be upon you and the power of God and the Holy Spirit be in you. Embrace transformation because it can happen. Just ask questions in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.